If you were to drive this morning from here through Buffalo, New York to Canada this morning, your GPS might take you over the aptly named Peace Bridge. While Lake Erie spans some 57 miles from the north to the south, kind of at its uh, you know, greatest width or height, whatever you want to call it, uh, at the northeast corner it narrows, and by the time it's a mere mile across, you find the Peace Bridge spanning it. And there the water flows gently underneath. Uh, in fact, standing on the bridge or driving over it, you might mistake the water's calm pace to something like a lazy river. You know those lazy rivers? You've been to the amusement parks where you just kind of chill in the little floaty tube and you just gently go down. Uh, but if you were to get in the water, not only would you discover the icy cold temperatures, you'd actually discover that it's moving at about five miles per hour, which is twice the rate of an ocean rip current. For reference, Michael Phelps could only swim 4.7 miles per hour. Still, if you were to fall into the water, say, at the Peace Bridge, you might reasonably expect a boat to come and rescue you. You know, the, the current is stronger than a human swimmer, but not so for a boat. Your rescue, uh, it still absolutely could be coming. Surely somebody on shore would notice the danger you're in and rescue you. Yet as Lake Erie continued to narrow, you would soon notice the current of the river increasing until you are no longer in the lake, but in a river, the Niagara River, to be exact. What began as a lazy river would soon accelerate to up to 40 miles per hour as ferocious rapids hurled you down until that point where there would be no hope of a boat rescue. As the waters turned violently, you would finally come to the cliff itself. Niagara Falls. How is it something that is so beautiful could suddenly become so dangerous? How could something as unassuming as the gentle lapping of water against the shore lead to deafening and disastrous results? How might we avoid similar fates in our spiritual lives? This morning we come to Hebrews 5 and 6 as we encounter one of the most challenging and fearful warnings in all of Scripture. So let me encourage you to turn there now. You'll find it in your bulletin as well. In many ways, the book of Hebrews is oriented around five different warning passages. They form the backbone of the author's message to not fall away from Jesus. Uh, this particular congregation was tempted to revert back to Judaism and so the author reminds them that Jesus is better than everything that came before. He's better than the prophets and better than the angels. He's better than Adam and Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than any other high priest. And thus you should continue following Jesus because he's so much greater than everyone and everything that came before. And also, because as we'll see this morning, the stakes are so high. Falling away would be so catastrophic. So we'll be in Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 12 this morning. We'll have three points. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. Pursue maturity in Christ 
lest immaturity lead to apostasy. Pursue maturity in Christ, lest immaturity lead to apostasy. So look with me, beginning at Hebrews 5, verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full, or to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Amen. Well, our first point is found in chapter 5, verses 11, uh, to chapter 6, verse 3, entitled, The Call to Maturity. And in this section, we're going to see how the author of Hebrews, he shames the congregation for their backsliding behavior. His point is going to be that Christians should grow. That's what should normally happen. Ordinary Christians ordinarily grow. Yeah, that's not been happening recently because verse 11 says that they have become. They have become dull or sluggish of hearing. You see, in the past, they were zealous and eager. Yet recently, they've become lazy and despondent, spiritually speaking. They've regressed. Verse 12 states it clearly. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Notice how the author explicitly states that the congregation, the Christians there, ought 
to have grown in their faith. They ought to be teachers. The point isn't that every Christian needs to become a pastor, not at all. But the assumption is that after being a Christian for so long, you should be able to exhort and encourage others in the basics of the faith. Right? It's like what we saw in chapter 3 when the author said, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We all are to be teaching one another. And so there's an expectation that you've, you know, you've been a Christian for so long, you should know these things. Right? It's like in parenting, uh, your kids, you come to the point where you expect, like, you, you should know how to put your dish in the dishwasher. Uh, you should know how to make your bed. You're 12 years old. You should know how to get yourself a bowl of cereal. Right? Like, there comes a point where you say, this is expected. Yet these Christians, uh, they weren't in a place where they could instruct one another. Instead, they needed someone else to teach them the basic principles of the oracles of God. After all this time, they're still in Christianity 101. And so the author gives the child-rearing analogy to illustrate the necessity of growth. Right, so at the end of verse 12, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. You understand the illustration, right? It's pretty straightforward. Uh, babies grow. At first, they can only drink milk. But then as they grow more mature, what? They start to eat solid food. Um, but the end of verse 12, to kind of translate it literally, it says, you have become needing milk. It's that same become word as in verse 11. And so the illustration is provocative even insulting. These Christians are like children who initially had milk. They kind of grew out of the milk stage where they could have solid food, but now they have become babies again. Spiritual infants. They have gone backwards and regressed. So they no longer can have solid food. This infancy is described in verse 13 as being unskilled in the word of righteousness. Uh, that is that these Christians, they don't understand the word of righteousness. They can't digest or profit from God's word. Think about this. When, when a baby grows, they need solid food, right? They need the nutrients of the solid food that the milk itself does not provide. And so it is that these believers, they, it wasn't just, well, you can you know, live on the milk and that's fine. But no, to grow as you ought, you need this meaty doctrine. You need these truths, these solid truths. Yet instead, they could only handle the basics. Conversely, verse 14 says, Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know, so these are people who can profit from God's word. Uh, they can digest and understand it. They can distinguish between good and bad teaching. You know, it's like eating a chicken wing or a turkey bone. You need to know how to chew the meat and what? Spit out the bone. I, I have to say, I think this is one of the most crucial needs in our time today this kind of discernment that the author of Hebrews is talking about. 
of being able to distinguish between what is good and life-giving and supporting and what is bad, what is evil and wrong. Right, so if you just think about it, kind of never before have human beings had access to as much information as we have today. Uh, and that particularly, as it relates to our case, to religious information. So in the Middle Ages, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would literally chain Bibles to churches because they were afraid lest the laity, the people, interpret the Bible on their own. They said, no, you have to have an authorized interpreter, namely the church. Okay, then you get what? You get uh, Luther and Wittenberg, and you get the printing press, right? And you get the proliferation of authors. Now, you don't have to just listen to the, the bishop of Rome, the pope. You can listen to Martin Luther. Okay, so there's this proliferation of information, and then you get the internet. And then you get social media. Now everyone is a self-proclaimed expert on the Bible or the Christian life or whatever. And as Christians, we're inundated with that information, aren't we? Uh, never before have we been surrounded by so many teachers, so much teaching. And so, Christian, I ask you, do you know how to, be, or do you know how to distinguish between good and evil, right and wrong doctrine? There's a lot we could, we could kind of drill in on. But have you so trained your mind and heart to think critically and discerningly about the spiritual influences on your life? Um, on social media, with family, and with friends? Are you able to identify trends and trajectories, future challenges and issues that are going to impact you and your discipleship of Christ and your children? The point is not that you need to get a PhD in theology. The point is not that you need 180 IQ to be able to kind of figure this out. I like the way Pastor John Piper puts it. He says, you need to have a nose for bad theology. Right, so even if you can't put your finger on it, exactly what it is, you can tell when something is off, when something's gone wrong. We, we all need to kind of cultivate this ability because there are bad radio stations and television programs and Instagram accounts, and book publishers, and ministries, and TikTok influencers. And they are trying to get your attention to teach you false doctrine. And so we need to be able to identify those who rightly teach God's word and those who wrongly do it. Again, you need to do this for your own soul. Uh, if you love anybody in the world, you need to do it for their sake too. Uh, for your spouse or your roommate. Uh, for your kids or your coworkers, your family and friends. We live in the age of information, and so we need to be able to distinguish between good and bad doctrine. Let me just say that kind of one of the safest ways to, to be trained in this and to do this is to let your local church be the primary discipler of your spiritual life. Uh, so I assume that you know, not everyone will become a member of Trinity Church Bedford for the rest of their lives. Lord willing, that's kind of my hope, that I will be, till I die. Okay, but I assume that not everyone in this movement, like the Air Force will take you away from Hanscom in a, too short of a time, sadly. Okay, so when, you, when that happens, I'm not just talking about Trinity Church of Bedford. I'm saying let whatever local church you're in be the primary discipler of your following after Christ. Because one of the dangers of the current media environment is that you get discipled by online teachers, by social media influencers, you don't really know what their life looks like. 
We don't really know if they are walking out their faith, what it, the, the outcome of it. So Hebrews 13 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, the point, obviously, is not that your local pastors and leaders are inerrant or perfect or anything like that. Instead, it's that you, these are people you know. You can actually consider their way of life, and you can see if it's bearing good fruit or bad fruit. But, of course, we can't do that uh, when we are being shaped and discipled primarily via online teachers. So, beloved, as you seek to grow in maturity, learn to distinguish good and bad teaching and do it primarily through godly brothers and sisters in the context of the local church. Uh, that'll be the safest thing for you as you seek to understand and grow in maturity. And so it's in light of this backward slide that the preacher then exhorts them in chapter 6, verse 1. Look there. They've been going backwards, but instead, he's calling them forwards. You become babies, but instead, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation. To be clear, the point is not that they should abandon the basic truths of Christianity, but they should build on those truths, like you build on a foundation. Right? That's, that's what a foundation is for. Right? You don't dig a big hole, pour the concrete, and then kind of say, mission accomplished. No, you, you lay the foundation, and then you build on it. And likewise, you also don't build next to it, right? As if the foundation is one thing, but then you, you're going to frame it and put the roof up over on the side. No, the foundation provides the stability and support for the whole structure. Without the foundation, you can't go on, but you should move on from the foundation, you shouldn't just be tinkering with the foundation, only focus on that. You need to keep growing and building. And so verses 1 and 2 lay out some of these foundational doctrines of Christianity. Um, notice at the end of verse 1, it mentions repentance from works that lead to death, putting your faith in God. This is kind of the beginning of the Christian life, isn't it? At conversion, we see our sin. We see that it leads to death and spiritual ruin. And we say, okay, I'm going I'm to turn from that. I turn away from my sin. We turn to God. And we put our faith in him. That's the initial moment of coming to faith in Christ. Now, verse 2 also mentions instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. Frankly, these are a bit harder to identify what exactly he's referring to. It likely refers to the importance of baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 2 mentions, it ends, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You see, the Christian life begins at conversion, but has its telos or aim or goal, final judgment. The resurrection of the dead. The fact that all our lives are, are hurtling towards the day that we will stand before the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, these are the foundations of our faith. Uh, we shouldn't abandon these, but build on them. And so, again, notice the assumption with the building. Notice the assumption with the child rearing. It's the same. Growth is good and natural. Christians should grow like a building grows, like a child grows. Again, we know this from 
you know, many areas of life. If something is alive, it grows. That's why when you plant a vegetable garden, right, you, you scatter the seed, you put it in the sunlight, you put some water on it, and you expect it to grow. I trust you don't water your plastic plants. At least you shouldn't. Right? Like, why, why don't you do that? Well, it's not alive. doesn't matter how much water or sunlight you put on it, it will not grow because it's dead. But if it's alive, it will grow. Likewise, children grow. They start young and day by day, sometimes in obvious ways, but usually in unforeseen ways, they keep on growing. Families grow in love and in number. And when there is a lack of growth, you begin to suspect, don't we, that there is some form of unhealth. So if a child isn't growing like their peers, a doctor might check the blood work or nutrition. When crops aren't fruitful like they should be, disease and fungi are often the result. And many couples and families desire to grow, but medical challenges prevent them. That's why it should be a strange thing to have a Christian who isn't growing. If you are alive spiritually, you should grow. All of us should be. We should be growing in our understanding and application of the gospel to all of life. We should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. We should be growing in our keeping all that Jesus commanded. That's just kind of normal Christianity. And so, brother or sister in Christ, are you growing in your faith? Again, verse 12 says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. Uh, you, Christian, have you grown to the point where you could disciple a new believer on how to follow Jesus? Again, the point is not that you need to be able to write a dissertation on the Trinity. It's not the point. But you should have a basic understanding of Christian beliefs. Whether you've been a Christian for two years or five years or a decade or two, you should be able to teach others how to pray, how to evangelize, uh, the importance of vocation, personal devotions, family devotions, church involvement, how to make decisions, faith and obedience, who Jesus is. Uh, this is not something that's just kind of for the spiritually elite. This is something that all of us are summoned to. Yet why is it that so many churches in America are filled with Christians who are not growing? Uh, might it be the case that some of those people who claim Christ are not indeed Christians at all? If it's not growing, is it really alive? So for you, brother or sister, beloved, if you aren't growing as a Christian, why is that? Uh, is there suffering in your life that has distracted your gaze away from the Lord? Is there sin or temptation that you are holding on to that is holding you back from following after Christ? Find another brother or sister here and say, hey, I want to grow. Will you help me? I don't even know what that looks like. Will you help me? And so the author concludes his first section uh, by verse 3. I, I just love it. He's exhorting them, grow, do this, work hard. Verse 3. And this we will do, if God permits. Again, the author has just shamed these Christians for lack of growth. 
He's charged them to stop being baby Christians. He's saying, like, you are responsible for this. And yet he ends by saying, well, ultimately it's up to God. God is sovereign and we are responsible. And if you say, like, well, no, it's got to be one or the other. It's going to be like, not according to the Bible. It's both. If you don't fully understand how those two things can be true, that's okay. Me neither. But let all of us indeed work hard at building on the foundation of Christ, knowing that ultimately it is God the one who works in us as we work out. Let's turn to our second section now in verses 4 to 8, entitled, Warning Against Apostasy. In the first section, he exhorted them to keep going forward. In the second section, he warns them about what will happen if they keep going backwards. Let me say this is probably maybe the hardest few verses in all of Hebrews. I don't know. If you want to argue with me about that afterwards, you can. You can convince me. There are a couple of hard passages. Um, Alongside chapter 10 of Hebrews, it is the most severe warning passage in the book of Hebrews, probably in the Bible. There are multiple plausible interpretations, and I'm going to give you mine. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. I still love you. Uh, there, it, it's a tricky few verses, um, but what we find in verses 4 to 6 is the dire warning, and then verses 7 to 8, another illustration. So look at verse 4. Uh, 4, that is, it's really important for you to move on to maturity because 4, it's impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now on the surface, this warning seems to state a few things. Number one, it seems to state genuine Christians can fall away. They can commit apostasy and abandon the Lord. Second, if a genuine Christian does fall away, if they lose their faith and deny Jesus, it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. So that's, right, I mean, that's weighty. To eternally depart from our Savior and friend, to re-crucify and disgrace the Son of God, the thought, the imagery is horrifying. And I think if this were the only passage on such matters, we would have to conclude that Christians can get unsaved. However, I actually don't think that a genuine Christian can lose their faith. Because there are so many verses that talk about God protecting his own and his keeping his own. We close with one of them almost every Sunday, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Right? God is the one who keeps us from stumbling. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, Our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
Or Philippians 1.6, our assurance of pardon earlier. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, all right, well, what do we, what do, we do then? What do we do with Hebrews 6? How, how do these verses relate? Because if you only look at Hebrews 6, you likely come away thinking that you, genuine Christian, can lose your salvation. But I think when we get a, a capacious enough view, a big enough view of the whole Bible, it causes us to examine this passage a little more closely to see if there might be something else going on. So here, here's how I would put it. In this passage, God is warning his people of the dire consequences of apostasy and his warnings are always heeded. That is, his warnings are always effective at preventing the type of destruction that he warns against. Okay, so our loving Heavenly Father is like a perfectly skilled mountain Sherpa guiding us up to the top. On our way to the heavenly city, our pilgrimage takes us on this treacherous journey. There are dangers everywhere. And so God in his love, he warns us. Sometimes he encourages us as we're going up the mountain, traveling to the new Jerusalem. And he says, follow this path and you will find green pastures for your soul. Sometimes he instructs us, you will find eternal life on the narrow road, not the broad road. And then sometimes he warns us, like in our passage today, saying, whatever you do, do not follow that trail. Do not put your foot on that rock. I know it looks secure. I know it looks stable. If you do that, it will lead to your downfall and your destruction, and there's no coming back. Now, when you and I give advice to people, sometimes they take it, right? Which is appropriate because we are only sometimes right. But when God desires for his word to be effective in keeping and preserving his children, it is. It is effective 100% of the time. He never fails. I just think about what kind of father he would be if he brought... 90% of his children home, right? The Tuckers, they don't go home and they're like, well, we got most of the boys. Well, what kind of shepherd would Jesus be? And if he said, well, I got 70% of the sheep. I don't want that kind of shepherd watching out for my soul. Beloved, the great news is that if you are in Christ, you will most certainly persevere to the end. God will keep you. Christ will preserve you. The Spirit will guide you. And yet, how does that happen? What happens through means? It happens through warnings, like we find here in Hebrews 6. It's similar to how sometimes people dispute the truth of God's sovereignty over salvation by saying, well, look, if God has already elected some people, then, you know, there's no point in evangelism or prayer because God's already appointed the ends. So, like, the means stuff, it, it doesn't matter because God's going to save who he's going to save, so it doesn't matter what you do. Well, kind of. Yes, God is sovereign over the ends, but he's also sovereign over the means. Not only who gets saved, but how they get saved, through your love and acts of mercy and your prayer and your evangelism. 
So don't be fatalistic about it. Work hard, share the gospel, etc. I think likewise here, God keeps his people in the faith by showing them the horrible fate that would await them if they were to turn from Christ. So Christian, as you read Hebrews 6, you should go, I don't want that. I, I don't want to re-crucify the Son of God to, my shame, to his shame and to my destruction. The warnings are crucial to keeping you, Christian, a Christian. That's why the phrase, once saved, always saved. Raise your hand, Who, who's heard of that phrase before? Once saved, always saved. Okay, I think it's basically unhelpful. Because if you've ever heard it, you know that people tend to imply something like, well, you got your get out of hell free card when you were six years old at a church revival. And so now you can just live however you want. Now you can just do whatever you want. You got your ticket punched, so you're good. It gives the impression that it doesn't matter if you spurn God's law, disassociate from his people. You can live however you want because the end has already been secured and the means doesn't matter. I think a better phrase would be once saved, finally persevering. Once saved, finally persevering. Because our lives do matter. If you are truly saved, God will keep on preserving you and he does it through this warnings and you taking heed of them and going, oh no, I don't want that. And so you continue walking by faith. I think the author then gives us an illustration of this to prove his point in verses 7 and 8. Look there. He says, for land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it. Okay, so it's just, that's the, the, there's land and rain falls. Okay, and then there's two divergent outcomes. And produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated. It will receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Here we see that in the end, there are only ultimately, finally, two ways to respond to God's grace. When he showers his blessings upon you, his word and his revelation, the knowledge of his son, his people, you can either respond by bearing good fruit or bad fruit, but notice this, God's word doesn't leave us the same. It changes us. God's word right now is either softening your heart towards Christ or hardening it. Like right now. And so it is that we are to bear good fruit. The judgment of burning there at the end of verse 8. It recalls Jesus' words from John 15, which we read earlier, which Deborah read for us, for those who don't abide in Christ. Growing up, we would um, kind of backed up to woods, and so we would often have bonfires at night, especially this time of year. It's perfect for it. We'd have marshmallows, invite the neighbors, invite the kids over. It was great. And, you know, the time would come, okay, go get some, some firewood. And we really just had one rule about collecting the wood, which was that if it's green... If it's attached to the vine, if it's growing, don't touch it. Right? You don't break a new piece of wood. First off, it's not going to be good for the burning. And second off, it's bearing fruit. It's doing what it should be doing. But if it's dead, 
If it's bearing no fruit, we'll just throw it in the fire. That's all it's good for if it's dead. Brother, this is the warning before us. Are you bearing good fruit in your life? Obviously, we are never going to be totally sinless in this life. That's why we need Jesus as our high priest. That's why we need his atonement. That's why we need his cross. That's why we need his grace every day. Can I get an amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Yet Christ desires not only to save you, but to sanctify you. Right? That we increasingly bear good fruit to the glory of God. Friend, does your life reflect that? Let's turn now to our final section in verses 9 to 12, entitled, Assurance and Zeal. After shaming his audience for their lack of maturity, and then warning them of the dire consequences of continuing on their current trajectory, the author now turns to reassure his congregation. He says in verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Notice this, that these Christians, they started well, they have backslidden, but he says, I'm confident that you're true believers, genuinely in the faith. So it's possible to be a Christian and to backslide. Real Christians can go through periods where they fall into sin. So this isn't saying that if you've ever fallen into sin, that it's hopeless, you're beyond repentance, you're beyond hope, you're too far gone. It's not saying that at all. Remember what we read earlier. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So if you're hearing his voice today, believe and abide. For these Christians, they had fallen back, they had regressed, but the author is confident that they they belong to salvation. For, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Christian, did you know that God, like a proud father, delights in your obedience? Sometimes Christians throw around the verse that, you know, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. That means that if you try to stand before the Lord by being a good person to justify yourself, yeah, you have no hope. It's like menstrual rags, fecal rags, no chance. But now as a Christian, God delights in our obedience. God, as a good father, delights in his children's imperfect obedience. Right? He, he knows that it's imperfect. He knows that we could always do more. He knows we could always give more, sacrifice more, etc., etc. Yes and amen. But beloved, God actually remembers it. And he delights to reward it. Because when we do good, especially to one another, notice that it's uh, to the saints, to those who are Christians. When we serve the body of Christ, we are loving God's name. Isn't that fascinating, that connection? You love God by loving your neighbor? It's amazing. It's like the author of Hebrews learned it from Jesus. It's incredible. We glorify the God of the universe when we bring parents of a new baby a meal. 
praise the Lord. When you bring a meal to a sick Christian, when you pray for another believer, when you comfort the persecuted and warn the backsliding, when you show hospitality and offer a shoulder to weep on, or help a Christian move, or read the Bible with a new believer, when you do all these things, you are showing love for God's name. Because ultimately, it is Christ that brings us together. He's the reason we serve one another. He loves that. And on the last day, he will reward that faithfulness. And so let me just say, Trinity Church of Bedford, what a joy it is to serve alongside you. Uh, what a joy it is to see so many of you having, like, just, yeah, behind the scenes. As a pastor, like, my favorite thing is kind of overhearing. Be like, oh, we had so-and-so over. Oh, it was so good. They're so wonderful. I'm like, yes. Like, oh, yeah, I got, so, got together with so-and-so. We're reading the Bible, this book. I'm like, yes. Oh, I brought a meal to someone. They weren't feeling well. Their kids were sick. So, yes. But there's nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing warms your pastor's hearts as when we hear about you serving one another, loving one another in practical ways. Uh, what a joy it is to serve alongside you. And so let me just encourage you, keep on doing it. Keep on loving the Lord by loving one another. That's actually the note that this passage ends on, verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. We'll talk about the rest of verse 12 next week. You see, the opposite of sluggardliness, spiritual laziness, is earnestness. And that word sluggish, it's actually the same word in verse 11. It, or sorry, verse 12. It's the same word as in 5.11. So 5.11 and 6.12. 5.11, it says, since you become dull of hearing, it's kind of you become sluggish, lazy of hearing. And then here in 6.12, so that you may not be sluggish. Now the author is calling for earnestness to continue in zeal, notice, to the end. Not just for a season, but for the rest of your life. So Christian, are you growing in Christ? Let's be earnest to the end. Grow in Christ. I don't mainly mean, you know, when I say, like, are you growing as a Christian? I don't mainly just mean, like, do you have more consistent quiet times now than you had five or ten years ago? That, that's great. I hope you do. But I mean, are you serving the saints? Do you love God? Can you teach the truths of the gospel to a child or a neighbor? Are you fighting sin? Let us pursue earnestness together. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the call on you is to begin your heavenly journey. The call on you is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross as our substitute, who went to the grave and then was raised victorious after three days. The way you become a Christian is not by saying, okay, I need to be a good person, do these good works, not fall away. The way you become a Christian is by trusting in Christ, in his grace. And then his grace motivates and empowers and fuels our obedience to the end. Beloved, though sin may look like a lazy river, the truth is that it will lead to eternal ruin for all who follow its current. The Christian life is not so much going with the flow, but going against the grain. By God's grace, let us all pursue maturity in Christ. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, you know how fleeting and fickle we are in our obedience, how prone we are to wander off course and to stray. We pray that you'd preserve us. Pray that you'd keep each and every one of us here. We pray for those who are young, who have placed their faith in Christ. We pray that you'd preserve them for many years and years and decades to come. We pray for those who've been following you for many years. We praise you for your persevering, preserving, protecting work. Lord, you alone keep us. You do what we could not. We pray that you would help us to help one another, serving one another for the sake of your name. We pray that you'd keep us and hold us fast. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.